You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, and welcome to the Pratt Library's Writer's Live series. It is my pleasure to introduce our guest author this evening, Jabari Asim. Asim was scholar-in-residence in African-American studies and in the Department of Journalism at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and he also spent 11 years at the Washington Post as deputy editor of the book review section, children's book editor, poetry editor, and editor of the Washington Post Education Review. For three years, he also wrote a Washington Post Writers Group syndicated column on political and social issues for the Post. And he is also former vice president of the National Book Critics Circle. Prior to his work at the Washington Post Book World, Asim was book editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, during which time he was the only African-American to supervise book publishing coverage at a major metropolitan daily. Once you glance at his bibliography, you will notice that Asim is a prolific writer. This evening, we are pleased to have Jabari Asim here to discuss his latest work, We Can't Breathe. Please join me in welcoming Jabari Asim to Baltimore and the Pratt Library. Hello, everyone. Can everyone hear me clearly? Usually I project really well, but I was on the radio earlier today and I probably talked too much. So not quite as, as amplified, naturally amplified as I normally am. Uh, I want to thank everyone here at the Enoch Pratt for inviting me. I think I've been here probably for every book that I've, I've published. Uh, and so I appreciate the, the hospitality this institution has shown me. I lived in Maryland for a long time, lived in Silver Spring for a number of years, and um, also in Baltimore for three years. So it's good to be back in this neck of the woods. Um, The new book, We Can't Breathe, is a collection of essays uh, addressing various issues of importance at the moment. I'm going to read to you uh, an abridged version of one of the chapters um, called The Elements of Strut. And hopefully it'll be self-explanatory and we can talk a little bit about it afterwards and anything else that may interest you. In ideal circumstances, the human body flows in a state of strut, a jauntiness, an ease, a response to the rhythms that animate the earth. To strut is to reflect the graceful rotation of the planet in one's breath, in one's step, in the pace and melody of one's speech, in one's swerve and laughter. I strut, therefore I am. Strut is the body in motion, manipulating and moving through space. Strutting requires freedom, the liberty to flex and stretch. Lately, I've been watching a short film by Andrew Margitson. His camera follows the brilliant dancer, Little Buck, as he floats, pops, and glides through the Foundation Louis Vuitton in Paris. Dancers are often so supple that they can't help themselves, walking with a distinctive grace 
that signals their talent. Little Buck doesn't walk like that. He enters the museum as any ordinary mortal would. He is lithe and trim, to be sure, but with an unassuming gait that hides his kinetic genius. Then the music begins, and he leans into the air, his ankles as improbably bent as a hapless guard defending LeBron James. His voiceover narration introduces his style as a blend of hip-hop and ballet. As performing artists, as dancers, he explains, we see everything as art. Up the escalator and through a light-filled space adorned with paintings, Little Buck maneuvers his undeniably dark body, pirouetting, altering time, and gently challenging gravity. He bends to the point of crumpling, only to reassemble, restoring his smooth musculature as if by magic. The beauty of the dance is a timely distraction. Little Buck moves adroitly in a space where figures like his have seldom been regarded with respect or delight. His sublime world helps me forget, however briefly, that darkness in a body complicates even the most basic stroll, reduces an inalienable right to an elusive privilege. The unbound black body is profoundly inconvenient. The dark muscles, the bones underneath, the vulnerable organs and the sheltering skin, each comprises a segment on the map of a plundered continent. Each is redolent of conquest and empire. Four centuries ago, our ancestors were marched at gunpoint across sand and savanna, far from their home villages to near death and misery in the confinement castles of the African West Coast. Those who stumbled and lost their footing never made it even that far. Inevitably, history complicates our strut. Then, as now, locomotion sometimes can require treading the slender border between life and death. Lately, headlines remind us of all the same and different ways a black body can collide with its inconvenience. Breathing, walking, waiting to cross at the light, using a golf club as a cane while crossing a Seattle intersection, heading home while carrying candy and a can of iced tea. Any of these can be seen as unforgivable trespass, alien intrusion on ground that must be defended. The wrongful arrests, the point-blank executions, the gunshots to the back, the militarized police responses, the illuminating silence of white self-styled liberals, and, most critical, the paucity of convictions, all point to the same existential question. How can we strut in a strange land? While my contemplation of strut respects the question of how to live in a black body, I am more interested in how to escape my own imprisoning concept of that body. I don't believe the black body has any more potential than any other kind, but I am concerned with the extent to which its capabilities are suppressed by one's own internalized limitations. Racism and its accompanying cruelties have shaped me to police myself, to restrict my own movement through spaces. And by spaces, I mean both actual and metaphorical. 
The great resistor Carter G. Woodson warned, when you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. He might have added, independent thinking seldom goes undisciplined. Some black people use this fact to justify subjecting their children to corporal punishment. They contend incorrectly. I beat my son so the police won't. On any given day, how often do I manage to keep oppressive thinking out of my head? Am I ever free from an imagined white gaze? How often do I succumb to beating myself? When my wife and I visited the National Museum of African American History and Culture during its opening weekend, immense crowds made it impossible to linger before any of the exhibits. Still, it was easy to make connections between past and present, even while moving rapidly. Easy, for example, to note the painful irony of tolerating forced elbow-to-elbow intimacy with strangers in underground passageways while looking at displays about the cramped horrors of the Middle Passage. Easy to look at shackles and think of Alton Sterling, executed by police a few months earlier while bound and subdued in Baton Rouge. Or Kajim Powell, after killing the mentally disturbed man, St. Louis police officers rolled his corpse over and cuffed his inert wrists behind his lifeless back, as if mocking that whole freedom in death thing. Similarly, it was hard to look at images of Africans chained in the holds of storm-tossed trading vessels and not think of Freddie Gray, shackled in the back of a speeding Baltimore police van on a rough ride to his death. Hard to avoid the unsightly realization that rusted iron manacles from the mid-1800s forged specifically to hold a black body in place, still look sturdy enough to do the job. A century before those shackles were forged, a colonial landowner named George Washington was also obsessed with policing the mobility of his enslaved. In Henry Winchek's book, An Imperfect God, the historian writes that the man who would become president created a new problem he called night walking. Men and women going out at night to visit family members. A man named Boson, who was twice caught running away in 1760, may actually have been night walking to visit his lover when he was caught. Yet do I marvel at the complexity of such a strut, the strategy and fortitude employed in traveling great distances, avoiding paddy rollers under cover of darkness, indulging hurried kisses and urgent embraces before rushing back to begin the day's drudgery. Washington was long dead by 1849 when Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger B. Taney weighed in on the intricacies of strut. In his dissent in the passenger cases, he wrote, We are all citizens of the United States, and as members of the same community, must have the right to pass and repass through every part of it without interruption, as freely as in our own states. Eight years later, in Dred Scott v. Sanford, Chief Justice Taney would explain exactly whom he meant by we. Their debasement reaffirmed by Taney's court, both the enslaved and those tethered by subtler bonds continued to rely on culture for solace and even transcendence, however brief. In jubas, ring shouts, and cakewalks, black bodies turned and pranced with rhythm, delicacy, and commitment 
as if they could strut all the way to Africa or failing that, a territory where slavery had been banned. As they stepped and whirled through war and its aftermath, as the contours of their collective strut distorted and bent under the ignorant gaze of their captors, as movements that began as parody became subjects of parody themselves, their motions must have acquired a melancholy knowingness. Yet they pressed on, dipping, wheeling, and risking delight. With the Southern Rebellion ostensibly resolved in their favor, the newly emancipated were no doubt inclined to waltz directly from the fields and quarters to the beckoning world, where the post-bellum precursor to dancing in the streets. But in their initial jubilation, they struggled to withstand a new reality in which they stood unshackled but remained unfree. That condition was already familiar to those who had earlier slipped through the cracks the rebellion had created. Desperate and with few friends or resources, they followed the conquering footsteps of the Union Army. Neither soldier nor fugitive speaks with so deep a meaning as that dark human cloud that clung like remorse on the rear of those swift columns, swelling at times to half their size, almost engulfing and choking them, Du Bois wrote in The Souls of Black Folk. In vain were they ordered back. In vain were bridges hewn from beneath their feet. On they trudged and writhed and surged until they rolled into Savannah, a starved and naked horde of tens of thousands. Blackness to a ragged thinness beat shines nonetheless. In the midst of filth and misery, the refugees shared sustenance and intelligence, forming new alliances of bond and blood. They made a way out of no way, just as their ancestors had done, in the sweltering bellies of Jesus, Amistad, Henrietta Marie, and the other vessels that had dragged them, battered and tormented, to the looming horrors of a strange new hell. Sometimes I picture in my mind a crimson thread originating in Africa, unspooling alongside a young boy, stumbling and choking as his coffle yanks him toward the sea. The thread extends apparently without end through the bloody spill of centuries and across fruited plains and fetid plantations, trailing the double-time stomp of a black Union soldier and continuing to unspool beside the swollen ankles of a church matron marching her way from Selma to Montgomery. I could see the thread snaking along Pennsylvania Avenue during Barack and Michelle Obama's stately walk to the White House. It's a spirit-lifting fantasy of black endurance and triumph, a useful antidote for the weary blues. I imagine the black refugees that Du Bois wrote about might have been similarly revived by the sight of dark-skinned soldiers garbed in Union blue counting off cadences while picking them up and putting them down. Just such a scene unfolds in glory, the Oscar-winning 1989 film about the mostly black 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. A group of black children scurry across a yard and line up at a picket fence to gape and grin at the regiment as they proceed down a southern lane, rifles poised on their shoulders. With fifes and drums providing accompaniment, Morgan Freeman, portraying Sergeant Major John Rawlins, pauses to smile kindly at the children, 
That's right, he tells them. Ain't no dream. We run away slaves, but we come back fighting men. The children, bathed in a sepia glow, stare in awe at the soldiers' retreating ranks. In the background, a choir sings soaring angelic notes. Now I'm going to skip forward a little bit in here and read a different section about... um, I want to introduce this notion of the black body continuing to move through space. And one of the figures that I was drawn to was Elizabeth Eckford, who some of you may have been, may be familiar with in 1957 when the Little Rock Nine integrated Little Rock Central High School. She was the girl who didn't have a phone. She didn't get the call. So eight of the students left under protection and she walked to school by herself. And there's really iconic photos of Elizabeth Eckford being harassed and threatened as she walks to school holding her books wearing these dark glasses I've always been kind of struck by her and what that strut must have meant and what it must have felt like I wonder what songs would have been on Elizabeth Eckford's playlist in 1957 decades before playlists and iPods Eckford found herself walking alone to Little Rock Central High Separated from the eight other black students who would join her in integrating the school, she was forced to maneuver through a crowd of furious white women and men. They spat poisonous curses at her with all the enthusiasm of monkeys hurling feces at gawking humans. One could say those rapid Arkansans were in a prison of their own making, trapped in a destructive mythology, prevented from exercising their full humanity. One could almost pity them if not for the impact of their psychosis on the black people then living in Little Rock. They could not sleep, eat, learn, or walk according to their own desires. I have long been intrigued by the famous photograph of Eckford strutting carefully through that corridor of shrieking flesh, her expression stoic, her books held close to her chest, her eyes hidden behind dark glasses. I'm amazed that she stayed on her feet, reached her destination with no bop or groove to drown out that loathsome chorus. In contrast to Little Rock, it was mostly men who pushed and shoved a young black woman named Shia Nwanguma at a Louisville Trump rally in Kentucky in May 2016. Video footage shows her assailants jostling her and cursing her while Trump hollers get out from the podium. Like the predators of Little Rock, the feverish Kentuckians can barely restrain themselves in their eagerness to inflict harm on a black woman's body. Americans who recalled the slave codes of yesterday may marvel as I did that those frenetic tribesmen assembled in the Louisville Convention Center were able to give sign or notice to one another of their wicked designs and purposes without the assistance of a single drum. All they needed was the urging of a bully with the pulpit. In both incidents, nearly 60 years apart, a black woman walked a solitary path with her life in danger, her own deportment a dramatic contrast to the uncivilized pack yelping and snarling around her. This is called strutting while holding body and soul together. Okay, and I'll read you one last section. In 1975, I was wowed by the whiz. 
There was much to admire in the brilliant, all-black reimagining of L. Frank Baum's classic. My favorite characters had no memorable lines, no crowd-pleasing solos. Instead of Dorothy, say, or the Scarecrow, I was drawn to the road. In Jeffrey Holder's Broadway staging, the famous yellow brick road was embodied by a quartet of golden, nappy-headed brothers who escorted the main characters on their journey to Oz. George Faison's Tony Award-winning choreography combined the exuberance of the cakewalk with the flashy footwork of a Jackson 5 performance, which the four dancers executed while maneuvering walking sticks more than six feet high. In the big-screen version of The Wiz produced three years later, director Sidney Lamette replaced the silent dancers with 26 miles of Congolium. The film's disappointing box office receipts can't be blamed on that single change, but it sure sapped the joy out of it for me. I think I found the road dancers appealing because they reminded me of those smooth operators who bopped through our St. Louis neighborhood. In big apple caps, bell bottoms, and platform shoes, they looked as if they'd leaped out of those men's fashion ads in the back of Ebony magazine. I thought men who looked like that were the epitome of cool free-range strutters whose knack for swagger extended beyond the block. Elegant and powerful, they were high-stepping, hip-dipping masters of the slide, the glide, and the insouciant saunter. I imagined they could go anywhere, even to the white side of town, and return with their black bodies intact. It was a fantasy, I realized similar to the collective African-American dream that will someday go from trotting James Weldon Johnson's stony road to easing on down it. It's a vision of a free black future that keeps us on our feet. Bodies in motion, we strut despite the persistent riddle of history, hard at our heels. We strut toward a future that is neither clear nor promised. We strut with consummate style. We strut with surpassing grace. We strut, therefore. Thank you. And the book kind of goes on like that. I'm looking at different things about blackness. Black bodies in public spaces is something that particularly interests me. Black images in books, film, music, etc. Trying to pass all of those different experiences through my own imagination and see what I come up with. And there's there's eight essays altogether. Um, happy to entertain questions or comments. If you have any, I thank you for coming and I thank you for listening. Hey, Mr. Asim. Um, I'm just wondering about uh, uh, cyberspace, when you talk about strutting, I think about protected spaces and uh, boundaries and limits. And I just wonder if you uh, see any corollary of the strut manifests itself in cyberspace. Um, I guess what, what has interested me most so far is not the strut, but responses to the presence, responses to the presence of, of blackness in cyberspace, uh, which carries with it the same complications of, of blackness in any other space. So we're talking about actual spaces, we're talking about geographical spaces, and we're talking about metaphorical spaces, which used to be limited uh, to certain aspects of the culture. Like originally, popular culture was mainly books and music, for example. So I have a whole, I have a whole uh, section 
on this one of the first best-selling jazz records, uh, which was called The Dark Town Strutter's Ball, uh, and, and what the manifestations of, of strut mean in, in musical culture. So now cyberspace is a relatively new space, uh, but the same forces of resistance that we encounter in actual space, we encounter there too. Um, and, and it's been notable. There's quite a bit of racism, for example, in gaming communities. Um, there's quite a bit of sexism in those same communities. There have been some horrible experiences for women daring to strut metaphorically in those spaces. Uh, so, you know, one of the things we think about about cyberspace is that it's Originally, we posited it as this potential paradise, this wonderful space where the restrictions and prejudices that exist in real life would not exist. But perhaps unsurprisingly, we've carried those prejudices and fears and attitudes into that space as well. Come on. I don't recall Baltimore audiences being this shy. <laughs> Hi. Um, so I've often noticed that a lot of the, the rules and the structures of traditional writing and what's celebrated in writing is rooted in a lot of historical whiteness and a lot of more traditional lexicon of the black community is often seen as not intellectual. Um, how do you, as an intellectual engaged in the writing community, balance that expectation and kind of bring forth the, the black voice? Well, it's hard for me to imagine bringing forth any other voice because this, 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 this is the voice I have. Uh, but I guess one of, the, one of the things I've always been... The way I look at it is I'm borrowing from the poet Muriel Rukeyser who says the universe is not made of atoms, it's made of stories, right? So I'm kind of going from that idea. Then this idea from Richard Wright. Richard Wright argued early on that um, in literature there's this, there's this battleground where whites and blacks battle over the very nature of reality, right? So that always kind of stuck with me. And then the third concept uh, was Toni Morrison and her idea about the master narrative, which she says is not race-based, but it's power-based, right? So I, I looked at all of that, and I came up with my own concept, which I call narrative combat, which is sort of these clashes of stories um, that you know, are almost irreconcilable. One story is imposed by the majority culture and attempts to tell the narrative of black people, how black people got here, what black people's purpose is, what black people deserve, what black people are trying to take from other people. It's a corrupt narrative. It's a distorting narrative, and it's never been correct. So I see part of my mission as a writer is to resist that with everything I have, with all of my vocabulary, with all of my imagination, right? So the work kind of results from that. Uh, that, that said, um, I also want to acknowledge and recognize that I grew up in, a, in an all-black inner-city community that was filled with storytellers of a genius level. I mean, it was just brilliance on every street corner, every barber shop, every beauty salon, every schoolroom. You know, there's just people who just spin, for lack of, um, for lack of the appropriate analogy to help majority cultures understand, I would say that they spoke with Shakespearean majesty, right? But with language that they, they conjured from their own experiences. So I, as a writer, that is what shapes me. As a reader, other things shape me, right? Du Bois said, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not, right? So I, I feel free as a citizen of global culture 
to pull from wherever I want to, right? In terms of what I've read, what I've experienced, where I've been fortunate to travel. But it always comes back to that community where I was shaped and nurtured by these storytellers with amazing and profound gifts. And hopefully the language reflects that. Oh, I, I didn't know it was in the beginning, so that's a good question. I grew up in St. Louis, uh, which is... I'm sorry, I grew up in St. Louis, yeah. Um, traditionally, uh, an intensely segregated community builds itself as the gateway to the Midwest, but it's actually the gateway to the South, I would argue, uh, in terms of custom and culture. Uh, the African-American culture there, most of the African, African-Americans came from uh, Mississippi or Louisiana, so people in my generation are a couple generations removed. So like my wife, for example, is from the same area. Her parents are from Mississippi. My grandparents are from Mississippi, right? So a lot of our folk ways and our language still carries a lot of that flavor, even today, I, w- I would argue. Uh, so it was, it was in that culture um, that, that I came of age. Hi. Hi. I just want to say that I admire your parallel when you depicted Elizabeth Eckford walking through the crowd on her way to school and the parallel with the president. I liked that. That was good. Thank you. Literary disposition. Thank you. That was one of the first things I thought about when I saw the footage of this young black woman trying to walk walk through that Trump rally and how she, she held herself together. So when everyone around her just lost it, right? And she was just courage and dignity. And these two incidents are decades apart but it's essentially the same situation. It's, it's a black body being told, you're in the wrong space. Um, I just, I, I see a lot of parallels between St. Louis and Baltimore mm-hmm. and their histories. Could you talk a little bit about what you see? Uh, well, I guess on a municipal level, one of the things that I saw was that uh, St. Louis, like Baltimore, exist independently of the county that shares the same name and sort of is next to it. And I think that's fairly unique among major cities. Baltimore and St. Louis are both kind of uh, unique in that regard. Uh, culturally, of course, nothing unique about the, the, the depth of the segregation that one sees. I'm not as familiar with it in terms of specific geographical terms. In, in Baltimore, but say like in St. Louis, uh, there's a street called Del Mar. There's even a documentary about Del Mar. Del Mar was the dividing line between the all-black uh, side of the city and the all-white side of the city, and it's still the dividing line. I mean, there's, there's some, you know, there's some going back and forth, and of course there's gentrification, uh, some creeping over in, into the north side. Um, and so there's this uneasy coexistence between uh, what we might call gentrifiers, new urban pioneers, homesteaders, uh, whatever you want to call them, and people who've been there for generations. And that that same kind of conflict takes place in St. Louis. There's also a lack of genuine municipal power in St. Louis, more so than Baltimore, I think. Uh, You know, at least in terms of the presence of African-American elected officials, uh, I think St. Louis is probably... um, a decade maybe behind Baltimore in terms of that kind of that kind of development. Um, when you mentioned the rally in Louisville, um, I, I'm I'm from Louisville. I grew up in Louisville, 
and uh, haven't lived there since, uh, oh golly, when did I leave? Um, I don't know, mid-60s, 65, 66, or 67. Um, and and I, I think I saw that. Um, sometimes I will tune into the rallies for a few minutes. I can't stomach them more than that, but just to see what they're actually saying. And it, it's just, um, it's like shock and awe for me. And it, it, I guess that other part of me, it's like that's not the Louisville that I grew up in, mm -hmm. uh, even though maybe it was and I didn't know it because my parents weren't that way and I wasn't, um, it wasn't part of my own thing. Although my grandpa, who was from Montgomery, said mm -hmm. to me once right after um, the, uh, what was the, in the 50s, uh, the desegregation, um, what was it, the, the da -da. Bus boycott? Uh, no, 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 that, that uh, uh, oh. right, right, right. Oh. He said to me, oh, do you have any colors in your school? And that was, that was in the 50s, mid-50s, it was within that year. And, um, and, and it kind of, you know, he, he came from a different world. He came from a world that saw lynchings, even though he prided himself on being not that way at all. But um, I, I guess my question is, <laughs> there's that thought of would, um, would there ever be a Trump rally? I, I can't imagine in Baltimore, but maybe I'm being really, really, really naive. Um, I can't imagine that many people being in one place that filled with that much hate, but I may be way wrong. In Baltimore. In Baltimore, in Baltimore County, there would be, huh? Okay, okay. Because I did, I watched some of the uh, West Virginia thing too. Sometimes I'm surprised that C-SPAN seems to have more rallies on. And, and I, well anyway, I, I'm just, um, it's out there more than I, in my own naivety, ever realized it's there, and we know it's there, or, yep. or he wouldn't be up there in the office that right. he's in. Yeah, I would defer to the people who live in Baltimore. <laughs> you know, I, I think they're... I, I can't I can't say with authority, but you know there there are people in the room who live here daily who could probably testify with with some authority on it. Yeah. I have a question about you, you talked about the um, the kind of uh, combat narrative, and there's like this dominant corrupt narrative that I'm interested in how that narr that corrupt narrative is still being replicated in the universities and people think of the universities as progressive places and yet that is still being I think replicated uh, all the time and we're graduating people with advanced degrees who still don't get it and I'm wondering if you have any comments about that. Well it's interesting uh, a lot of that, that at Emerson College where I teach we had uh, student protests in 2015 group of students of, of color, various ethnicities, um, basically staged a protest where they interrupted the faculty assembly and 
and really testified earnestly and, and eloquently about what their experiences had been in terms of microaggressions. I mean, they, had, they identified uh, microaggressions and racial hostility, and I think principally in three areas. And one was like in the student life areas of the college, like the dining hall and the dorms and that sort of thing. Um, another was uh, in the classroom in terms of comments that other students, white students, were comfortable making. Uh, you know, addressing the subject matter. And the third was the attitudes of certain faculty members who said, I, I, quick examples, one faculty member told a South Asian woman, I'm never gonna get your name right, so I'm gonna call you brown girl, right? Yeah, that, that, that was one. Another one was, <laughs> sorry, I have to laugh, I laugh to keep from crying. Um, a woman said, I don't know why, why black people are offended when they're compared to animals. I love animals. Right, <laughs> so that's just two. Um, but what struck me was that many years before, I had been a leader of student protests where I went to school and the exact same complaints, right? Nothing had changed. So um, we did some things within, some of us formed a splinter group of faculty and we kind of forced through um, faculty legislation that requires all the faculty to undergo cultural competency training it still doesn't work though because even during the training we had a group of all white men of a certain age who sat in the back of the room and graded papers in protest. They wouldn't participate. And then the other defense uh, that they say is, uh, well, I'm all for diversity, but my particular discipline has nothing to do with race. So, you know, I teach biology, you know, whatever, right? Uh, and so, you have, I mean, and there's so many holes in that particular defense that you can quickly uh, attack. Um, but I think, I think you're right, and I think the, the other arena that we're seeing it now is the whole discussion of, of free speech, right? So, you know, we're, we're, we're a university. We're supposed to entertain uh, different intellectual ideas that, that may be in conflict. And so the debate becomes, but this particular speaker is a white supremacist who endorses racism and, and vocally dehumanizes people like me, and you're asking me to engage that particular viewpoint as if it's somehow comparable to my own viewpoint, which is that I'm actually a human being and entitled to all the rights and privileges of humanity, right? So it's, it's, it's a mess. I'm so sorry. We have a campaign at my college where they're advocating for like civility when we're talking. As for me, civility means tolerating that kind of thing because I don't think there are two sides to every issue, right? right like when you right. say we have to be civil when we talk, that means you want me to tolerate someone who's spouting that kind of nonsense and acting. So that word for me is, is troublesome and I'm wondering, have you um, had to deal with that at Emerson or anything? We, we, They're very popular yeah. around here, civility campaigns. Yeah, so the, so the argument becomes, well, let's define civility, right? So we've certainly had that, and we've had it more in the context of it's very much a progressive school. It has a progressive reputation. So the downside of that is there are conservative students who feel so oppressed by the atmosphere that they can't be themselves. So we're being cautioned, right, to look out for certain, uh, certain points of view. Um, and there's no obvious solution in sight. Okay, hi. Um, hi. I haven't read your book. Um, when I saw the title and I 
saw the that you would be here at the Enoch Pratt, I said, I'm going. And so <laughs> my friend and I are here. Um, I just, I'm in the process of finishing the book, White Fragility. Mm-hmm. And my question for you is, what's the goal of your book? Um, and how, how can it be used to, or can it be used to help white people who are not quite ready to even acknowledge that there are issues, you know, they're, they're not even aware because they're in, it's like they're in the midst of it, they can't even, they're in the forest, they can't even see. Um, how does, would your book help to address or help a white person become a little bit more aware, just trying to figure out what the goal of your book is. Yeah, well, that certainly isn't the goal. Okay. Um, I'm trying to position this idea of blackness within this context of narrative combat, that there are all these forces in society, some intellectual, some something else, that say this is what blackness is. This is what black people are capable of. This is what black people are not capable of. This is what, what black people deserve. I want to push back against all of that with everything uh, that I have. And I, you know, I am hopeful that there's information in there uh, that will help people who are trying to make decisions about how to be better citizens, how to be better global citizens, how to be better Americans. At the same time, though, I mean, I have to say that that particular kind of of resistance, that particular kind of information, um, has been shared by Black people and Indigenous people for at least 400 years. So. We, we can't acknowledge this position that I need more information. There's too much information right now. Um, and when I talk about providing information for difficult conversations, I really would like to see a lot of those difficult conversations take place between white people. You know, we, we keep saying we need to have these difficult conversations so we can see what black people think, how they feel. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, in most cases. Uh, so I think the difficult conversations need to take place in other communities and get beyond. Um, I mean, most of us who work in an integrated environment have no doubt experienced uh, after Thanksgiving, you know, the anecdote at the at the water cooler. I just had Thanksgiving with my racist relatives. I, the lone progressive, had a really difficult time. I felt really oppressed. I couldn't say anything to my grandfather. He said awful things about black people. It was terrible. Right. And I'm not sure what I'm supposed to take away from that particular confession. I don't see how it advances, you know, unless you tell me um, I confronted them. I, 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 I encouraged them to address, why do you hate black people? Why do you distrust black people? Why do you feel that black people are, are less worthy somehow? You know, these are, these are conversations that across uh, racial boundaries have, have always happened. I mean, indigenous people, black people, Latinx people, eloquently making these arguments for centuries, right? So that's, that's not my focus at the same time. As a writer, you know, Chinua Achebe said, writers don't give prescriptions, they give headaches, right? So that's, that's part of my job, to share the headache I have with, with, with everybody else. And, and at the same time, uh, the poet Mary Oliver has this poem, Instructions for Living a Life, in which she says, pay attention, be astonished, tell the world about it. And that's sort of what I try to do. I try to pay attention, be astonished, and share what I see. If I could go back about, I guess, maybe about 100 years and look at Du Bois' concept of the talent of the 10th, 
and bring it today after Baldwin, civil rights, what have you. Who would the talented tenth be and where should that group be focused on as far as winning the minds of young black people today? Um, one thing I see is I observe my community here, young people seem to be giving up. How do we win the war for their minds to kind of create that intellectual appetite to get smarter, to get better, to engage these tough questions with this crazy world that they live in? Yeah, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a challenge for all of us in terms of, you know, not, not giving up. Because I think if you don't have much information, if you're not trying to get smarter, there are compelling reasons uh, in society to encourage you to give up. I think if you are getting smarter and you, have, you are absorbing this information, the impulse to give up can, can be just as strong. But just to revisit the talented 10th, Du Bois argued that the, talent, the most educated um, 10% of the African-American community had an obligation to um, work on behalf of the other 90%. Now, Du Bois backed away from that later in his career. He realized how elitist it was you know, to assume that leadership could only come from that 10%. Um, and it's not an either or, it's a both and. You know, it, uh, leadership can come from uh, someone who cleans streets. It can come from someone who has a law degree. You know, people have different areas of expertise. Um, so I would kind of push back gently on the, on the idea that we need to revisit uh, the talented 10th. Uh, and then also I would look at what are the ways in which we can educate young people besides the ways that we're accustomed to being educated. I mean, I'm such a book-oriented person. You know, I, I write about that in the book. My dad was a school teacher. He brought all the books home. All we did was read all the time. That's not everybody's experience. So part of my challenge is to somehow share that information in other forms. And then there are other people who have equally compelling information who will never write a book. They'll share that information some other kind of way. Um, and then I guess what I, I would say to young people and try to embody with young people the same mantra that I give myself pretty much on a daily basis because when I wrote the n-word it took me close to seven years to do the research and it was so hard on my psyche you know to have to just wallow in this really sick uh, supremacist stuff all the time and I remind myself you know Baldwin said despair is a luxury only white men can afford and so as long as I'm not a white man I'm not going to wallow in despair, I have, I have no choice. I have no choice but to do this work. And I think uh, that's part, the significance of the mission is something we have to share with young people, but also tell them they can, they can pursue that mission regardless of what they're doing. You know, they, they don't have to be uh, hyper-educated to do that work. Because a lot of the best work, Movement for Black Lives, for example, in Ferguson, a lot of the best work, a lot of the best leadership coming out of that movement is, is not from the quote-unquote educated people. It's from the quote-unquote street smart people, you know, who had really concrete, practical, ground-level suggestions to make uh, that you couldn't have come up with if you had put uh, a room full of PhDs in a, in a conference. They wouldn't have been able to do it, right? Cause I, so I, I think it's less than an either-or, it's a both-and. we got to um, be open to receiving wisdom from, from wherever, whatever party it's coming from. Hi. Hi. You did a great job on the radio. Oh, thank you. And I ended up here because I happened to be on NPR. Mm. But um, I've always been a big fan of um, Malcolm X, mm. Martin Luther King, Joe Carter. I moved here 
um, I don't know, gazillion years ago from a fresh graduate, Florida State University from the South. Mm -hmm. But it's really the North where I grew up in St. Pete, okay? Mm -hmm. And the reason I tell you this is because we didn't have this polarization mm -hmm. where I grew up. Mm -hmm. You know, suburban beach America, and it was weird. I came here after I graduated to go to graduate school at the University of Maryland for social work. And I worked for a demonstration project through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And I was 21. And I moved here, I don't even know, God called me here tonight and he called me here to the Dixon of Mason Dixon. <laughs> the place that defines divisiveness. That happens to have the name of the woman who carried our savior in her womb, Mary's land. And I have become disgusted with a state that I've called Maryland my Maryland. And here's why. I drove 40 minutes tonight from the middle of Baltimore County where everybody would maybe, I don't know, somebody said frustrated with and angry about racism and I'm not that girl. Mm -hmm. I'm that girl that climbed those Murphy homes that used to be around and I wondered why there were needles on the ground. Mm -hmm. Do you understand? But my first friends were black by the physical description and we shared food and we shared conversation and we went to one another's homes and I've been to Bridgeport and I've eaten pig's feet and collard greens and I loved those friends who I still cherish. But I came tonight to find out when you're compelled to do something and you said, I had no option but to do it. Mm -hmm. I had to do this work. How did you know how to go about doing it? That's, good. That's, good. That's a good question. Because um, I, I tell my students I didn't choose writing. Writing chose me, right? And so in, in some respects, it's, it's definitely a calling. It's definitely a calling. Um, and so many people are, are not even fortunate enough to stumble upon circumstances where their calling is revealed to them. Uh, but how did I set out doing the work? I guess it, I, I learned what to do at the same time that I discovered that this would be the work. Uh, when I was in college, uh, and I, I'll make it very quick, there was a three-day residency by a black writer at my college. I was a political science major. And the... the um, the writer was Gwendolyn Brooks, first African-American to win a Pulitzer Prize for poetry in 1950. And she was at, uh, at our college for three days. She was a guest of the Women's Studies Residential College, of which I was not a member. But for some reason, I, I felt like showing up. And you know, she read, and she spoke, and I was transformed. And um, I actually skipped all my classes for three days and became an unofficial member of the Women's Studies Residential College. Every time they looked up, there's this black guy sitting in the middle of the front row, and they're like, who oh, is he? Is he in your class? Uh, because I was compelled. I knew that's where I needed to be, uh, and I really wanted to absorb everything that she had to, to offer. And at the end of the, uh, the uh, three days, this story I tell often, my son is here with his daughters. He's probably heard this story before. Uh, but I called my mother. It was back in the days of long distance. And I called my, my mother and I said, um, 
you know, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Long pause on the phone. Long, long pause, right? All things going through her head. And finally, she says, um, that's okay, baby. Medicine is a perfectly respectable profession. <laughs> Took her a while to, you know, you go into college for what? Right? But eventually she came around. Uh, but I, I started doing the work. I mean, I started really paying attention uh, to people who were out there. I started reading. I asked questions. I was that young guy who was always there, like kind of waiting after the author signed their books. I got one more question. I got one more question. Um, and, and that's how I started doing the work. We'll do one more question. Hi. I also heard you on the radio, and that brought me out tonight. Yeah. Reading. Books versus television versus the internet and young people. Last month in the city of Baltimore, 35 murders. Today is the 16th of October, 15 murders. How are we to get young people to want to read when TV and the internet really takes them away from reading? That's my question. Uh, well, this is a partly unpopular answer, um, but I really think it's about stories and not necessarily about reading. And I said, you know, we're, we're of a particular generation. I'm addicted to reading, right? Uh, books are like crack to me. I can't help myself, right? But I acknowledge that um, future generations, I don't think that's going to be the medium. Uh, I think it's going to be stories, and I think the stories that we craft for the Internet, for games, for television, et cetera, are going to have to approach the eloquence and majesty of James Baldwin and W.B. Du Bois and, and Zora Neale Hurston. I think that's where stories are going to go. Uh, and I think on a... On a positive level, I think that's beginning to happen already. I mean, I think we have generations of young people where, you know, I teach creative writing, I teach the writing of books, and I'm always looking out in the room and wondering, is the next Zora Neale Hurston in here? Is the next Richard Wright in here? Um, but the reality may be that in the screenwriting, television writing, video game writing class down the hall is where the next Zora Neale Hurston is sitting, or the next Richard Wright. And they're going to transform storytelling in ways that I can't imagine yet. Uh, I don't think that's happened at this point. I don't think it's close to that. A lot of it has gratuitous violence, glorifies violence, uh, will not address the issues that you've so ably identified. But at the same time, you have a program like, say, um, there was a limited-run series on Netflix this year called uh, Seven Seconds. Anybody see that? Regina King. Really effective story against gun violence against police brutality um, would, would have made an excellent novel but whoever wrote it wrote a, a TV show instead and it was you know it's, it's going to reach many more people than my book will you know and that's the reality and I think we have to begin to make that concession think, think about story as opposed to books thank you Thank you, Jabari, so much for speaking with us. Um, and thank you all for spending your evening with us. Thank you.
podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.